working our way through chapter 8 as it was this morning. I did uh, cover this morning in the, tr the trumpet sounding, the, the nature of this alarm, as well as the cause of judgment as I shared this morning in summary was uh, their transgression uh, of, of the covenant and then their rebellion or outright rejection, uh, rebellion against God's law. I uh, talked about that, that contradictory cry, which uh, you could really expand that. I was thinking this afternoon, uh, that, that cry, particularly in the context that it comes, uh, there's just so much implied by that in regards to what they thought about themselves. And it really is fascinating uh, that they were oblivious, it seems, uh, to just how, just how corrupt they had become. And, and one of the lessons for me in that is that that's the way sin is. Uh, we, we nurse a sin here, we get hardened to another sin, and then that sin adds to this one, and then we nurse that one, and pretty soon we're accommodating quite a few sins, and we're getting more hardened all the way until where we go all the time, all the way down at the end of that road, uh, we have become completely hardened, although, uh, like Israel, we may still have been maintaining the form or, or the patterns of religious life. And that's a real danger. And I think that's really the main indictment of Israel. They had gotten away. They had continued to some degree these religious practices and even believed themselves to be the people of God. And so when the heavy hand and the severity of God's discipline came upon his people, they were completely baffled as to why that was happening. After all, we're your people. So it is really quite uh, an illuminating cry uh, that they were making to God. It says more about them uh, than it says about God. Uh, in, and as I shared this morning, it really was the height of hypocrisy. I got into this morning and didn't conclude these, but I wanted to share these uh, tonight and try to conclude them. But the cause of judgment in detail, um, this was really illuminating to me because it has application uh, far beyond Israel because I think we can be guilty of the same things, and not only as a nation, but sometimes even as Christians. Uh, we can harden ourselves. And as I shared this morning in verse 3, it says Israel has rejected the good. Uh, their God, as I shared this morning, was their good. And all the blessings that flowed in relationship with God was their good. But this they had rejected. Now, that doesn't mean that they uh, had these good things before them and they said, this is good. I don't want it. Uh, I think he means here the, what, what, what has amounted in your living is that you have turned away from all that is good, primarily your God, and having turned from your God, your good, then all the blessings and all the good that flowed through a relationship with God, you have in turn rejected that as well. So you can't, you can't, you can't turn away, you can't reject God and then say, God, uh, by the way, you owe me uh, a six-digit uh, uh, income each year plenty of health, a functioning family, a home, and, and a career. You can't, you can't receive the good while rejecting God who is the ultimate good. In fact, I think sometimes that's part of the greatest condemnation of our generation is that we would exploit so much so the mercies of God, uh, that we would uh, every day live by that mercy while using the breath that we take, which is by the mercy, to pursue the gratification and the lust of the flesh. It's as if we're using or exploiting the mercy of God to satisfy ourselves as a nation and sometimes even as people. So they were guilty of rejecting the good. 
In their unfaithfulness, they actually rejected God and in turn embraced evil. That's exactly where they had, begun, had, had come to. And that's exactly the trajectory of that. When we reject God, we will eventually embrace evil in its fullest. I mentioned in verse 4 as well this morning that they had assigned to themselves leaders without consulting with their God. They sat in place and submitted themselves to rulers who were merely reflections of themselves. Now that is uh, so sobering. As I shared this morning, you look at our leaders today, and it's quite sobering to think that they may be a reflection of who we are as a people or who we're becoming as a people. It's not to say that, that they represent your values and my values. In fact, we're upset because in many ways they don't. But in the aggregate, uh, those who, are, who have risen to those places of power and influence got there on the votes of people. And so in the aggregate, you look across our government, both parties, uh, all of them, you look across our government and they are in some ways a reflection of who we're becoming as a people. Uh, you hear me, and you probably said this as well, we have people in office today in places of power that 50 years ago would never have ascended to that place of power. They wouldn't have got a vote for as dog catcher. But now yet they are in powerful places. Well, the people didn't change. The people who were electing them changed. And they began to reflect and, and mirror the people who put them in place. That was God's indictment of Israel. In other words, you're, you're assigning people in places of authority and power, kings and princes. And they are merely reflections of you. You haven't consulted me. You haven't evaluated and asked yourself, okay, what sort of leaders ought God's people to have? And then look in my word, see what God values as far as character and morality, and then select kings and princes that are uh, living lives consistent with that. They're not doing that. And they're doing in many ways what we're doing in our day today. Uh, I'm convinced that some people are single issue voters. In some ways I am in terms of abortion. I am pro-life. Uh, but some people are single, single item voters. They say, give me a good economy and I could care less about moral positions. Give me a good, uh, give me a good strong military and I don't care how much in debt we go. And so there are people that are thinking in terms of what do I value? I want a leader, leader who reflects my values. And so when we look across the spectrum of our leadership in this country today, it ought to be a sobering indictment of where we become as a nation. Israel didn't seem to understand that, but God says to them, they have done this without consulting me. In fact, he goes on to say in regards to idols later on here that the reason or the cause of their making the idols or the result of that was that they were cutting, cutting themselves off from God. So they assigned to themselves these leaders. As I shared again this morning, they made idols of the things which they value. I hope you got my emphasis on that this morning. I, I don't know if I've I've expanded on that enough, but I, I couldn't get past the fact that you could make an idol out of anything. Uh, you could you could make it out of rock, you can make it out of wood, but he says specifically here, no, Israel made theirs out of silver and gold, things that they valued, things that had temporal and monetary value. They wanted a God made out of something valuable, and it just... It didn't escape me that the fact that they had taken what they had valued and fashioned that into a God, and we have too. We don't, we don't take money and fashion it into a God, but we just dispense with the fashioning and we call money, money is our God. 
Not just, not just money, but many times what money can purchase, power and comfort and luxury and all the things that money can promise us, that's become our God. That's, that's what drives us. That's what, that's what our priorities are. So in many ways, we can be just as idolatrous as they are. I said this morning in verse 6 where he says, so ironically, I think that the craftsman forms it. In fact, he says of that, for, for, from Israel is even this, this idolatry. A craftsman made it. Then he says, so it is not God. Uh, that, that's, that's the proof <laughs> that it's not God. Uh, the craftsman would be God. He made it. So he's superior to the thing he's crafted. So the very fact that a craftsman made these gods is proof that they are no gods, yet they exalted them as gods. And they had their bulls in Samaria and so forth. And they, remember, they set up these things in Bethel and Dan. And so they had already begun as idolatrous people when they were east of the Jordan, uh, just to pre- keep the people from going to the southern kingdom. But it, it manifolded, it, it expanded from there. And now they had become idolaters. They created a God out of the things which they valued. I shared this morning as well, just in review here, that they became incapable of innocence. Verse 5, he has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, my anger burns against them. How long, he says, will they be incapable of innocence? And so this is a long enduring condition with Israel. They were incapable of this altogether. And as I shared this morning, there's so much involved in that. As I wrote and quoted verbatim from my notes this morning, such is the peril, such is the peril of stubborn, prideful hearts. What at the start is a fleshly resistance to light and truth after long persistence makes that into an incapability. We are incapacitated to good and righteousness. We cannot be innocent in anything because even the outward good things we engage ourselves in are done in pride and self-exaltation. So we, we render ourselves incapable of any innocence, of right motivations. I remember uh, Brother Carl you know, used to kind of poke me a little bit sometimes and talking about I was sometimes root, too ruthless in my self-examination. Uh, and I think he was trying to encourage me uh, in the fact that there are positives, you need to hold on to those too. Well, I do. But the reason uh, I may be in, in the view of him and maybe even of others of ruthlessly examining myself is because I understand this capacity I have for hardening my heart against truth and light. Uh, it's, it's ingrained in my flesh and it will not, I won't be rid of that until I put off this old man. So the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So, so absolutely, I am concerned always about not just what I'm doing, but why am I doing that? Is it for the glory of God? Is my heart and my conscience clear that I am acting in this way for the glory of God? I was sharing with the young people this morning in regards to being ambassadors for Christ. And I was really making the emphasis that we are in this world representatives of the interest of Christ. That's what our, that's what our life and identity is. And I brought that down and I was sharing in your interactions with one another, husbands and wives, uh, parents and children, pastors and churches, deacons and elders, when we're relating to one another, our role in that is to act in the interest of Christ, to be representing his interest in that relationship, not mine. 
Now, granted, I hope they're similar or, or the same or related to one another, but as a husband to your wife, when you're interacting with your wife, your, your goal is to act on behalf of the interest of Christ in your wife's life. And she is to act in the same way with you, if you're an ambassador of Christ. See, we think of those and we narrow that term to mean, well, that means in the world. Well, if you're an ambassador of Christ, you're always an ambassador. You don't get appointed an ambassador. You are at the moment of the new birth and of your becoming a disciple of Christ. You become his ambassador and you represent the interests of Christ wherever you go. On the world scene, across the, across the continents, or right here in our own home, right here in our own community, in the relationships I have with others at work, in my family, and everywhere else. We are to be representing the, the, the interest of Christ so that's why we're always asking or we're always thinking in terms of why am I doing what I'm doing. I touched this morning briefly as well in verse 7 that they had sown the wind. For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. So this sowing of the wind, I, I couldn't get past in my studies this week of the, uh, of the beauty of this analogy. Because we do, in fact, as I mentioned this morning, we reap what we sow exponentially. Uh, you may say, well, it was just one sin today. Well, if this principle holds true, you're going to reap something far more than what you've sown. And there's going to be an increase. In other words, if I sow greed today in this one incidence, if I sow greed into my life, if I, oh, down the road when I reap the harvest of that, it's going to be exponentially greedy. And so the sin becomes exceedingly sinful. We reap what we sow. And that's a sobering, frightening truth sometimes uh, to us when we read that in the scripture. We let no man be deceived whatsoever man shall sow, that shall he also reap. Well, Israel had, had sown the wind. And as a result, they were reaping, reaping the whirlwind. Notice as well in verses 8 through 10, that they allied themselves with the nations. He says there, listen to the language here. Israel is swallowed up. They have become now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. So even among the nations, uh, they, were a, they, were, they were just a common vessel. Nobody delights in this. They weren't a silver pitcher. They weren't a gold, a, a gold chalice. They were just a common dish among the nations. They had forfeited their peculiarity in the world. They had become among the nations as a common thing. Nothing special about Israel. They have gone up to Assyria and like a wild donkey all alone, Ephraim has hired lovers. She's allied herself with these. Even though they hire allies, the Lord says, among the nations, now I will gather them up and begin to diminish them because of the burden of the king of the princes, king of princes. So they allied themselves with nations. This was part of their sin. This is the indictment looking away from God to find their security among the nations and actions which was not only an affront to God who had long been their refuge and strength, but also gave occasion for godless nations to mock and disregard the God of Israel. I mean, that was the, to me, that was the great tragedy because these people had a reputation as those who had been brought out from Egypt with a mighty hand. I mean, word went out that God had parted the sea 
had brought his people across and had destroyed the most powerful king on the earth, Pharaoh, and his army in the Red Sea as it came back. The, the nations were terrified of this people whose God could act in such a way. And in many ways, that terror, that fear of the nations was what was preserving the people of Israel as they were transferring themselves through the wilderness. They would come into these nations and they would hear, you remember Jericho, they heard about the God of Israel. And so Rahab uh, agrees to preserve the spies and she knows it's coming down upon the promise that she and her family would be saved. We've heard about you, Israel, and our people are terrified and it's a fortified city and we're gonna try to hold out. The city is, but we've heard of the God of Israel. He is not to be messed with. He is not to be taken lightly because we've heard of his mighty hand and how he brought you out of captivity. Now this people who had been known as the people of God, had sold themselves, as it were, to other nations. And in the process, they had diminished the nation's fear of their God. And so now they were common among the nations. They were just another people pursuing the lust of the flesh and exploiting and compromising and doing all the things that a lost world was doing. They lost their witness, as it were, in allying themselves to the nations. Think of us today. And think about that in application of our nation today. And think of it in application of our personal lives as well. Uh, we give testimony uh, when we're born again of the great deliverance that God had given us. And I've done that before. He brought me out of great darkness and great sin and despair. And I give testimony and you begin to live your life immediately where people who knew you when you were lost and in that place, they look at your lives and they say, something's wrong there. I don't know their God, but God is definitely real in their lives. And you bear witness to that and you show transformation of life that demonstrates that the God that you're talking about has real power in your life. And then they watch you and then somehow or another along the way you lose sight of that God and you begin to act in ways that disregard him and you don't take his word seriously and you, and you spend less and time, less and less time devoting yourselves to him and you think less and less of yourselves as an ambassador of Christ. So your testimony and your witness becomes meek and mild and sparing in the culture. And pretty soon that same person who heard you do that, they'd once at least recognize that maybe there's some power in this God. They look at your life and they... And they begin to think, well, maybe that was all an illusion because now they live just like we live. There's no real difference in him at all. It was for a little while. And so now it's given those who don't believe in God or, or have rejected God, it gives them occasion to go on in their unbelief now because simply because we've been unfaithful to that God. This is the indictment of Israel. They allied themselves with a nation and left God who, has always been, who had always been their refuge and strength. I was thinking about that this afternoon some. And I've said this before, but you as a believer, you can answer this in your own heart. But has God ever forsaken you? Has he ever let you down? Has he, has he ever not been a refuge when you needed a refuge? I can't think of a single time since I became a Christian that God was not there when I needed God. He was not, he was, I can't think of a single instance where I was oppressed and weighed down with the troubles of this world and finally found refuge in him. And when I got there, I realized that he was always there. He never left me. He never left me. I may have wondered 
but he didn't move. He was always faithful, and so he had been to Israel, but yet they had rejected him and gone to the nations. Uh, this was what I left on this morning. I want to get into this, but in verses 11 and also verse 13 in regards to the sacrifices, but listen to the language of this again carefully. I ended with this this morning. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. When you first read that, you think, well, that's a little bit, that's an odd sentence. What does this mean? They Read it again. So Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, and they have become altars of sinning for him. It sounds like he's saying the same thing in a different way, but I think there's a nuance there, and there's a point being made here as, as they multiplied their altars, which originally were for sin because they were set up in Dan and Bethel to keep the people from going to Jerusalem where God was to be worshipped. So their altar, as they multiplied these, the, the altars themselves became occasions for the sinning of the people. And so there's a, there's a principle involved here. And this is what I wrote. I, I wrote this down because I, wanna, I want you to capture what I'm saying here. And listen carefully. The more common... The more common the sacred things become to us, the more likely we will fall into a superficial participation in those things. For example, our weekly worship and the observances of communion and baptism. I wonder at times at the proliferation even of churches in areas where existing churches are already in place. So numerous, it seems, are churches and church plants these days, particularly in areas where churches are abundant, that I wonder if we haven't diminished in the eyes of many the sacredness of the gathering of the body of Christ. It seems these days that one can shop around for a church that satisfies some consumer impulse specific to the individual. If he can't find one to suit himself, he can just start his own up. All this while unsuspecting Christians, zealous for evangelism, say amen, supposing the proliferation to be somehow pleasing to God. Yet with the many churches, even here in our community, do we see a growing faithfulness to God and spiritual growth and maturity? I don't know. I don't think so. And what I'm saying is that unwittingly, the more we proliferate the, the things that are sacred the more common they become to us and the more they lose their sacred, their sacred nature. That's why you can drink a little cup of wine and throw a piece of bread in your mouth and go away not having communed with God at all because it's, it's, it's commonplace in the church. That's why we don't do it every Sunday. We try to do it at least quarterly because we don't want it to be so common to you that you just go through the motions because once it becomes common in your thinking, you, you lose the sacred reality of it. And it becomes no more worship. Same with our worship. If worship for us becomes so common, we lose a sense of its sacredness. The great glory and the blessing of gathering as those who have been redeemed and purchased in Christ. And we gather together in one voice and in one spirit, lifting up and exalting the name of Christ our Lord. Well, if that just becomes something common, you lose the sacred nature of that. And I think that's what he means here. Altars. And sinful altars became so common in Israel 
that the very thing that an altar once was in the mind of Israelites, which was a sacred place where offerings were offered up to God and where God received those offerings and brought his people near to himself, that sacredness of that was lost in the proliferation of altars. So, so be careful that you don't buy into this thing that if we do this enough, it'll, be, it'll become special to us. In fact, the more you do it, the more you ought to guard against it becoming common in your own understanding. That's why I've shared before, uh, someone asked me this week, uh, this week I was meeting with someone, they, they asked me, how do I go about preparing a sermon? And I said, I don't want to tell you for fear that you'll do the same thing. Because you'll, you'll systematize that and it'll become common to you. I can't say that I prepare the same way every week uh, for, for all these years. I, I can't say how exactly it is I prepare a sermon. All I know is I begin thinking, oh my God, I've got to stand up in front of people seven days from now. I've got to have some help here. That's where it starts. And then the scripture comes to bear. And then the meditation and all those things. And sometimes early Sunday morning, even still, there's a, there's a crying out, God, give me a spirit to preach. Give, make my heart right. Use the broken vessel. Use, use that to feed your people in some way. So, so I don't want it to become common. And if you do devotions, that's wonderful, and it's a discipline and a Christian practice. But be careful that you don't do devotions so rotely and so routinely that it becomes common for you, and you lose a sense of the sacred. If it's not sacred and special to you anymore, I, I would recommend this, but sometimes I fast from those things. I just don't do them. And I'm not defying God and rebelling against God. I'm, I'm basically confessing to God that this has become routine to me and I don't want that. I want communion with you. And so I'm fasting from this that you might remind me again of the sacred blessing and reality it is to come into your presence and communion with you. And then I'll take that practice up later on, having reoriented myself to understand that this is a glorious blessing and mercy from God that He would permit a child of His to come to Him in this way. I, I was, this has been, I've been obsessed with this all week. In fact, distracted by this one point even this morning. Because I am worried that church itself becomes so common to people that they come in the door and there's no sensibility of the sacredness of what's about to happen here. I mean, I believe where God's people gather together, His Spirit is dwelling. It's dwelling within each of us. But when we gather together to, get, to worship Him and He's moving in the hearts of these believers, there's no other gathering like that in the universe. Only where the body of Christ is gathered is that a reality and is that happening. I mean, people bow down and get on their mats. People turn prayer wheels. People go all over the world doing all these pilgrimages. And there's nothing in regards to those things that is anywhere remotely near what's happening in this sanctuary right here in Iredell County on Sunday mornings when we gather to worship God. But do most of us, when we walk into this place, feel 
anticipate the sacred reality of what's about to take place here. We've even tried to institute in this church in years past uh, trying to keep the sanctuary quiet. When you enter into the sanctuary, people would come in and sit and meditate upon the glories of God and what's about to happen in the worship of the church. And and, it never fails that we, we drift away from that. It's like it's too heavy. It's too, it's too heavy, too early in, in the morning. But if you think about what's happening when the body of Christ gathers for worship, it's sacred. And that's exactly what Israel had done with their altar. This was the place where the bulls and the rams were offered up and the blood was shed and, and, the, and the smoke of that sacrifice went up into the nostrils of God as a soothing aroma, uh, appeasing, as it were, His wrath against the sin of His own people through, the, through reflecting the blood of the sacrifice who was to come, who was Christ. That's how sacred and central it was to the life of Israel. But it became a commercial business by the time of Christ. They were carrying animals back and forth forth across the court of the Gentiles and rushing to here and rushing there. And he clears the temple out. You made my father's house a place of business instead of a place of prayer. It's commonplace to you. It's a vain thing for you now. And that was the indictment against the people of Israel. And to me, that is the warning to us in our day as well. In fact, in verse 13... He adds to that and says, as for my sacrificial gifts, uh, he means they're the ones that were bid to be offered up to him. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it. That's it. That, that sacred system of sacrifice, which was to point towards the ultimate sacrifice, who is the Lamb of God, that, that symbol, that symbolism for Israel became so common that it just became another occasion to feast. To fill my belly. What God had appointed as a portrait or as a symbol or a signal of Christ and the sacrifice to come had become a common thing to them to the point to where it was just another occasion to have a meal. Go over, offer up your sacrifice, take the meat, take that away, give the priest his portion, take it back to your family and y'all have a wonderful day of feasting. And what does he say about that in that verse? But I took no delight in that. I took no delight in their sacrifices. What's the point of the sacrifice? That's, that's what the sacrifice was. So that God might, God might see this and, the, and its connection to faith in the Lamb to come and, and delight in that. And so now they're offering a sacrifice which very purposes was to delight God. No longer delights God. And so what's left for them? Just to feast. If I could make an analogy, when you observe the Lord's Supper, uh, if, 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 you're not deserve, if you're not observing that in recognition of the body and blood of Christ, you just had a cracker and a little juice, and God took no delight in your observance because you didn't see in it what He was signaling in it, which mainly is the body of Christ. This was them. This was Israel. They defiled their altars by multiplication. And I think especially in our day, we need to be mindful of that. In verse 12, they disregarded the precepts of God. This was stunning as well. Because after having spoken to those issues, he says to them, though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. 
I think 10,000 there is just, it's, it's hyperbole meant to emphasize the point. I don't think he's counting every individual precept. If you want to go write them all down and see if you can count them up, maybe there's 10,000, maybe more, maybe fewer. The emphasis here is I gave them ample testimony in my law. They had every ounce of information they needed to live their lives faithfully. But what has become of this? What has become of these 10,000 precepts I have given my people? It's, 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 it's more than he says here, and they rejected those. He's already said they rebelled against my law, but here he says more. He says to them, those precepts, 10,000 that came directly from the mouth of God, have become to them a strange thing. That is sobering to me. It's in the context of the multiplication of these altars, it is said that there were 10,000 precepts, precepts from God that they became strange in the hearing of Israel. And this is what I was thinking in terms of what I've just shared about this multiplication. When the sacred becomes a vain thing, the word and truth of God will soon follow. Had their altars been held in high esteem and the worship of the true God been valued, the precepts of God would have maintained, been maintained as sacred as well. Instead, for Israel, that word of God fell upon deaf ears and hardened hearts and the people darkened in their understanding to the point to where the very words of God became a strange thing to them. Man, have you ever, is there ever been a more applicable time for that in our generation? You take the word of God and the truth of God into sometimes even into churches, quote unquote, and see and speak the truth of the word of God. And it's a strange thing. It's a strange thing to them. It's alien to my ears and to my understanding. And the world becomes so hardened and corrupted in its practices and receives darkness and lives in this darkness so long that the day the light shines, they go, well, that's odd. I haven't seen that before. That's, that's an indictment of how far Israel had fallen and how corrupted they had become. That the 10,000 the 10, precepts God had given to his people, to them, not to the nations, to them, through Moses and the law, that had become for them a strange thing. That should have been the most familiar thing in their lives. I mean, they should have been familiar with it. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, in Bar Mitzvah, by the time they reach that point, they have, they have been committed to memory so much Scripture, entire chapters of Scripture. They should have, this should be familiar to them. But testimony of how far they had fallen is it was strange to them. The very words of God. And then the final one in verse 14, this final indictment is there forgetting their God and they're building their palaces and fortified cities. He says, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. Having forgotten and forsaken their God, they sought the security of kings and walls and armies. They looked to man and to things of this world to assure their progress and prosperity. Palaces and fortified cities speak to us of authority and security. A king rules from the palace and his place is secured behind fortified walls. He and the people think themselves impregnable and unmovable, yet they deceive themselves. 
Because history is full and replete with the destruction of great, once believed to be indestructible cities and nations. Though some survived a thousand years, steep, uh, they are but archaeological sites today and objects of wonder to a generation like us, steeped in technology who think ourselves to have progressed beyond the errors that brought about the fall of those very nations. We are not. We are not. And we are relatively young as a nation. We're a baby nation compared to many of the empires that lasted for millennia on this earth. But not a single one of them exists to this day. You can go look up the archaeological sites. But this is what Israel did. They forsook their God and they built palaces and fortified cities thinking to secure their empire forever by their authority and by their defenses. And think about the nations today, what we do as well. We think if we get the right authority, the right leadership, and a strong military, we'll preserve our place forever. We'll be a superpower forever. Well, let me just say that apart from God, we'll be in the dustbin of history just like all the other great empires. Because there were great empires and some were dominant over every other empire in their day, but they're dust today. And we have to dig down hundreds of feet sometimes to find their city walls which they were so proud and were so sure were impregnable against the enemy. When we forsake God and rely upon those things, we will find ourselves in the dust. Let me just share these as we close out. In verses 3 through 14, I just wanted to review. These are the judgments God brings against his people in regards to the indictments he just made. In verse 3, he says of them that their enemies, enemies will pursue them. I already gave the contrast. There was a time when their enemies avoided them or sent emissaries to make peace with them. These were the mighty people of God. And so we best make peace with them or we lose our land or God will deliver us over into their hands. Now those same enemies that once feared Israel because of Israel's God are pursuing Israel. No fear of God anymore. In fact, they become instruments of God's judgment against his own people. Assyria, a, a wicked nation, itself has become a rod in the hand of God to, just a, to discipline his own people. And so that's part of the judgment of God. His enemies are pursuing him. What are our enemies doing in, in regards to America today? Man, they're pursuing us like I've not seen in my lifetime. I mean, they're plotting, they're strategizing, they're, they're allying themselves together, it seems, and they're subtly trying to figure out how to undermine all of our systems, cyber warfare, AI, all this other stuff, uh, uh, TikTok, uh, all these social medias. They're, they're conspiring and our enemies are pursuing us. <clears throat> Could it be because we've committed similar sins to what Israel had committed, forsaking our God? In verse 4, he says of them, they'll just simply be cut off. In fact, this is in the context of their having <clears throat> set up kings and princes apart from consulting God and having made for themselves idols. Those two things, I think, combined cut them off. That is a sobering thing. In fact, sometimes in Scripture that means kill them, put them to death. Here, I think it means more the idea of their activities by, by appointing their leaders and submitting to leaders that they appoint without consulting God and by exalting themselves or idolatry. They have literally cut themselves off from God. 
In other words, the mercy and the restraining grace of God against their enemies is no longer an advantage that they have. They've cut themselves off from God. Now they're in the world on their own. And now you're going to rely on your own strength against nations who are going to come against you who are stronger than you. You're cut off. You're cut off. I pray with all my heart that America has not yet reached that point. But at some point, this nation and other nations who forsake God will find themselves without, without hope for the mercy of God as the judgment of God comes down upon them. If, if you view that as not a mercy yourself, it may be that that judgment in God's heavy hand is a mercy to call us back to himself. So they were cut off from God. Verse 5, they are basically rejected by God and they become a provocation for his wrath. He says, he has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying my anger burns against them. He goes on, as I said, to say how long will they be incapable of innocence? But the judgment here is that they, had, uh, they were rejected by God and that they had been, become a provocation for the wrath of God. Uh, that's, that's judgment. Uh, I, I think sometimes God meters his wrath uh, really by the restraining grace, but, but dibs that out in measure, uh, not in fullness uh, until the day of the full, the, the final day of judgment. But I believe God judges nations in this world by stirring up himself in wrath against those nations and they suffer in the wrath of God. So it was going to be with Israel. Remember, these are God's chosen people who had basically violated the covenant and were now no longer uh, part of that covenant of God. And so he had, that they, he had rejected them and they had provoked his wrath. Verse 7, I already touched on this, but essentially their harvest will not profit them. He says they had sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind, but he also says there the standing grain has no heads and it yields no grain. So literally when they planted, it wasn't going to be fruitful. And if it was fruitful, the enemy would come and take that harvest. So now you're going to have famine in the land, Israel. It's part of God's judgment upon the land of Israel. You're, not going, to, you're going to sow and you're going to plant your seeds and you're going to be anticipating the harvest. And when it comes up, guess what? There's no grains on the, uh, on the head of that harvest. You planted one seed and you got zero seeds back in its place. You're not reaping the harvest that you wanted. And in fact, if, in, if per chance one of them does bear some grain, guess what? The enemy's going to swoop in and take the grain from you. And so either way, Israel, you're going to be experiencing famine. Uh, we, we've heard famine spiritualized. In fact, I've, I've got a book that says a famine in the land, and it's talking about a famine of the Word of God. Uh, they won't hear the Word of God anymore. They'll starve to hear the Word of God, but it'll be silent. Because the heavy hand of God's discipline is upon them. Verse 10, part of the judgment here is that they will not be able to conceal themselves among the nation from the judgment of God. Verse 10, he says, even though they hire allies among the nations, now, he says, I will gather them and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of the princes. So the implication there is though they go... Though they go integrate themselves among the nations as, so as to disguise themselves as the nations, I know where Israel is and I'm going to gather them from the nations. They're not going to be able to escape God's heavy hand of judgment upon his people. And neither can we and neither can America and neither can this nation. If God 
If we reject God and God has determined to bring judgment into our lives, go, go ally yourselves with the people of this world. Go submerge yourself into the secularism and keep up and, and bury yourself in the pursuit of riches just like the world. And you'll be concealed among the world. But the God who created you knows where you are. And I think the implication here was there was nowhere for Israel to go to escape this. They had their warnings. They could have repented. They could have turned back to God. They could have returned to God and heard the plea of Hosea here. Return to him. Bring words with you, he says later on in this book. They had these opportunities, but they would not return. And so now they will not conceal themselves from the judgment of God. Verse 13 kind of reiterates that. They will not escape God's judgment. But the Lord has taken no delight in him. He says there that he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. I think he means there they will come back into captivity. And then finally, verse 14, their glory will be consumed. He says Israel has forgotten his maker and he's built palaces in Judah, the fortified cities. But then he closes that by saying, but I will send fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. So all that Israel thought that they had prospered, all the symbols of their strength and their power independent of God, he would bring to ashes. He was going to send fire upon them. So in other words, the glory, the glory of Israel essentially would be consumed. I thought about this. It's a sad state for Israel. You know, even to this day, those ten tribes, uh, we've not really identified them. Uh, they were dispersed and scattered to the degree that they're, they're no longer to be, able to be able to be identified very clearly. There are many making the claims that they are part of the ten tribes and all of these things. But there's a, a whole area of research trying to find the ten tribes. And it's a sad state of affairs that because of the rebellion of Israel, God brought this judgment upon them. And now we, don't, we can't even identify them, the people of God here. And maybe I trust that God will bring revival among his people that someday and they will be many Jews to come to Christ, including in Israel, the ten tribes, and Judah as well. So it's a stark warning and reality from God as he speaks to his people Israel. And I hope, I hope throughout Hosea uh, you hear the implications involved of being in a nation like we're living in today. Uh, me and Brother Larry were talking briefly this morning. I said, the prophets are hard. I, I think he said the statement, the minor prophets, there's nothing minor about the minor prophets. And there isn't. And it's as if through the word of God, the prophets were hammering and hammering and hammering, pounding into dust all self-reliance of Israel so that they might throw themselves to the ground Prostrate, prostrate before the Lord and cry out for his mercy and forgiveness. And to me, that's why we can't ever stop preaching and teaching from the minor prophets, from the prophets in the scripture. Because we're in a generation now that it may take that hammering and hammering and hammering away. If you're a believer, you ought to rejoice that you've been redeemed in Christ, that your judgment has passed. And, and the severity of his judgment here ought to make you rejoice that you escaped that in your union with Christ. But as unbelievers, they ought to be terrified. 
They ought to be terrified because what God brought upon his own people Israel, he will bring in exponentially so in the judgment day upon those who reject God. How much, of great, how much more of greater punishment do you think those deserve who tread underfoot the blood of Christ? And Israel didn't have that. They had the sacrificial system pointing to that. But we live in a generation where Christ has already been to the cross. The blood's already been shed. And how much greater severe punishment you think those worthy who take and look at that blood and tread it underfoot and count it a vain thing. And so unbelievers ought to be terrified uh, in our generation at the judgment that is yet to come upon them when the fullness of the wrath of God is poured out upon them. Jesus drank the cup. I think that's what he was talking about in the garden. Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass. But nevertheless, not by will, but thine be done. And he drank the fullness of the dregs of that cup of God's wrath, which was due for you and I. We have a glorious Savior. Stand with me tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we hear the sober warnings of the prophet here and of your spirit. Lord, I think we would all agree, probably in large degree, that we are a nation not unlike the Israel spoken of by, to, by Hosea. Lord, we have enjoyed your blessings so many years, and we've enjoyed peace and prosperity and wealth and comfort and luxury to the point that these, the very blessings that you have sent us have become a common thing for us. And now we think ourselves to deserve them in some way. Everybody ought to have them. And Father, we work ourselves to death, it seems, to try to make ourselves more comfortable and more living more in luxury. But Father, all these things have been your blessings, your mercy. And I fear, Lord, that a nation that rejects you cannot long enjoy those blessings that flow from you. And we see it already beginning to happen here in this nation. So, Lord, we cry for mercy for our nation, for our leaders. Lord, I believe it's true that when we look in the whole, our leadership is a reflection of what we've become as a nation. And if we, if we are despairing by looking at who we have as leaders, Father, how much more despairing should we be that our nation has become such? And I pray that it would be an encouragement to us to share the gospel, to be evangelists, to carry the truth and the light of Christ into this world and to, and to have a sense of urgency about that, not only in the public, but, Father, in our own families, in our own lives, that we might be faithful to the truth of your word and that one by one and soul by soul you may call many to Christ and call many to glory and through that perhaps bring a revival to this nation. But nevertheless, Father, we pray that in all things the name of Christ would be honored and lifted up. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.